I have a question for you. Love for you to be thinking about as we go through this passage today. What does it mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We've heard Jesus say, follow me, to several people as we've gone through the book of Luke. And Jesus is going to say those simple two words, follow me, in our passage today. So what does Jesus mean when he says, follow me? And you know, maybe as important of a question, or even more important, is what do you and I mean when we say, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you, or, or I am following you? What do we mean? Do we understand when we say we're following Jesus? Do we understand the commitment we're making to God? We've come to a place in Scripture today where Jesus is going to define for us what it means to follow him and also what it does not mean. This is a very, very powerful place in the Word of God. It's quite convicting. And when I say convicting, I mean convicting like a smack in the side of the head. It's that kind of passage from Jesus today. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for always telling us the truth. Thank you for always telling us what we need to hear. Sometimes it may be not what we want to hear, but you always tell us exactly what we need to hear so that we can know who you are and what it means to really follow you. Father, we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear your truth and receive it into our lives. We pray in the all-powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to finish 9 today. We're going to be in verses 51 to 62. And when you're turning there, I have another question for you. When you were a kid, or if you are a kid, have you ever played the game Follow the Leader? Did you ever play that game Follow the Leader? It's really a very straightforward, uncomplicated game. You get behind the leader and go wherever the leader goes. I remember in grade school when we used to do it on the playground, if I was the leader, I liked to go through mud puddles because the girls would scream and they wouldn't go through the mud puddle. But that was, that's how I played. Do you remember the, the Disney uh, movie, Peter Pan? And the Lost Boys sang that happy little song, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader, we're following the leader wherever he may go. Remember that? I won't be singing anymore, but I do have my CDs for sale out in the foyer at the end of this, if you're interested, <laughs> and I'm sure none of you are interested. It's easy. It's easy to follow the leader when it's a fun little game. But following Jesus is not a game, and it's not always fun, and it isn't little. The decision to follow Jesus is huge because it lasts our entire lifetime and lasts into eternity. The Bible has a word for a follower of Jesus. That word is disciple. A disciple is a follower, an apprentice, a student. Jesus gave a command that has been called the Great Commission where he instructed his disciples to go make more disciples. How? How do you make more disciples? By teaching people to obey everything Jesus said. Therefore, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, and a follower of Jesus makes it his or her highest priority to learn everything possible about Jesus for the purpose of obeying everything Jesus said so that he or she can become as much like Jesus as possible. That's what a follower is. 
In the first century, the disciples of Jesus were so committed to be like him that other people made fun of him. They called them <clears throat> little Christs. That's what the word Christian means. You've probably heard that. The word Christian means little Christ. It was meant to be an insult. But it was actually the highest compliment you could give someone in the early church. Today the word Christian has lost a lot of its meaning. It kind of means more how you, you're, you're, how you were raised or your upbringing or your culture instead of the fact that as a Christian your entire life is devoted to becoming as much like Christ as possible. But that's what it meant when the word was first spoken. So back to the question. What does Jesus mean when he says follow me? What does Jesus mean when he says follow me? When Jesus says, follow me, he means, learn of me, learn of me, obey me, become like me. To follow Jesus, when he says it, he means, follow me, learn of me, obey me, and become like me. So what do you and I mean when we say we are following Jesus? Is that what we mean? Do we mean that our entire life is devoted to him first and foremost? That we are studying to learn everything we can about our leader and we are obeying everything he says and our highest priority in life is to become like him? Is that what we mean? <clears throat> or do we mean something else like the people we're going to read about in our passage today? Let's read together. Chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 51 to 62. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven to consume them? But he, Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village. As they were going on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Verse 51, let's look at that. It tells us the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, and he was determined to go to Jerusalem. What does Jesus' ascension mean? At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he will be crucified. And then Jesus will raise from the tomb on what we call Easter Sunday. Then 40 days, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus will ascend or go up to heaven. Luke writes about the ascension of Jesus in chapter 24, but also in Acts chapter 1. one. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 together for just a moment. Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they, his disciples, were watching and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go 
into heaven. I would have loved to see that. <laughs> Jesus' ascension was a literal bodily return to heaven. Jesus rose up from the ground gradually and visibly in front of many witnesses. Jesus' ascension signaled the end and the complete success of his mission, his ministry on earth. And his ascension marked his return to heaven where he is now preparing a place for you and me, just like he promised he would. Before Jesus can go up to heaven, he has to go up to Jerusalem and be lifted up on a cross. Jesus knows he will be rejected. He will be tortured. And he will be crucified by the very people that he loves and has come to save. The prophet Isaiah wrote prophetically about how Jesus, the Messiah, will be treated. Let's look at Isaiah together. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 to 7. This is what Jesus is aware is waiting for him in his future. Isaiah 50, verses 5 to 7. The Lord God has opened my ear. This means Jesus knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have made my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus is determined. He's determined to suffer and die in Jerusalem. He's made his face like flint. This means he is 100% focused on accomplishing everything God sent him to do. This is the person we are following. This is our leader. In verses 52 to 53, let's read, he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When Jesus traveled, lots of people traveled with him and gathered wherever he went. So Jesus couldn't just quietly slip into town to get a quick bite to eat or grab a room to stay for the night. Preparations had to be made in advance for his arrival. So Jesus sent messengers ahead to make arrangements in a village, <clears throat> but the Samaritans who lived there said, no, no, Jesus, you're not welcome here. So who are these Samaritans and what's their problem? To understand who the Samaritans are and their hostility toward Jesus, we need to go back about a thousand years before Jesus came to earth. In the 10th century B.C., after King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split into two separate kingdoms. They became the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Two kingdoms, each with their own king. And both kingdoms fell into corruption and sin, and God repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them to repent or be conquered by foreign enemies. Every now and then, Israel and Judah responded to the Lord, but then very quickly they just kept falling back into rebellion and disobedience. So finally, in 721 B.C., 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And many, many of the people of Israel were taken away as captives to Assyria, but some Jews remained in the land, and they intermarried with the Assyrians and with other races. And they became a part Jewish, part Gentile race known as the Samaritans. And the Bible records a very long history of hatred between 
the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus, of course, is Jewish and his entire entourage is Jewish. So the Samaritans refuse to receive him. And two of Jesus' closest disciples got all fired up about it. Let's read verses 54 to 55. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. James and John, they are very colorful characters. They never met a conflict they didn't like. No wonder Jesus gave them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. A few weeks ago, we read about how James and John, with Peter, were with Jesus when they watched him transfigure or transform into his heavenly glory. And they saw Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. Elijah is the Old Testament prophet who's famous for calling down fire from heaven to destroy the idol-worshiping priests of Baal. So in our passage today, James and John seem to still have Elijah on their minds, and they want to borrow some of his firepower to deal with these unfriendly Samaritans. They say, Lord, do you, want us, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven to consume them? In other words, you just say the word, Jesus, and we're going to smite them. We'll smite them good. We're going to go Old Testament on these people. James and John did not like how the Samaritans were disrespecting their leader, Jesus. And they want to see the Samaritans punished. Look at their zeal for Jesus. Look at their zeal for the Lord. But Jesus turns and rebukes them. He reprimands them. Why? Why the reprimand? Because James and John's zeal isn't for Jesus. It's from, <laughs> their zeal comes from their own dislike for Samaritans and also from their total misunderstanding of who Jesus is and why he came to earth. They're following a leader that they don't really understand yet. Jesus did not come to destroy sinners. Jesus came to save sinners, even the rude, snotty Samaritans in that village. Jesus came to save all sinners, even sinners we don't like. So Jesus rebukes James and John for their unforgiving spirit. I think we can all relate with James and John, can't we? It's really hard to forgive someone that offends us. And it's even harder to forgive someone that offends someone we love. But forgiveness, forgiveness is why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Forgiveness is what the cross is all about. Forgiveness is what Jesus is all about. What is the foundation of Christianity? What is the foundation of Christianity? Is it fire or is it forgiveness? It's not fire. It's forgiveness. And sometimes you might have noticed Jesus leads us into situations where we're going to have to deal with people that are really going to push our buttons. Remember, Jesus sent his messengers ahead into a village that he knew was full of Samaritans. Did the Samaritans act in an ungodly and quite obnoxious way? Yes. Did James and John have a right to be angry? Yes. Yes, they did. But James and John are following Jesus. 
And all followers of Jesus must surrender their rights to the Lord and say, not my will, not my rights, not my way, but yours be done. That's the follower of Jesus. That was why Jesus reprimanded them. All of us who say we are following Jesus, we must surrender our rights to the Lord and daily say to him, not my will, Lord, not my rights, not my way, but yours be done. Every difficult person that the Lord allows to cross our path is a test to see if we're going to blast them with fire or if we're going to show them what we've learned about the, the love, the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of Christ. That's our opportunity to show people what we've learned about our leader, Jesus. Like James and John, sometimes our attitude towards others needs a rebuke from the Lord. Verse 56, and they went on to another village. This is probably one of the most merciful places in all of Scripture. Can you imagine if Jesus destroyed every person that didn't immediately receive him? We'd all be lost. We'd all be lost. Jesus just moved on to the next village. And on the road, Jesus is going to have a conversation with three different people who are going to say they want to follow him, but they're going to mean something else. Let's read it again together, verses 57 to 62. As they were going on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and pro proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So this first person says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Matthew's gospel tells us that this person is a scribe. He's a scribe. What are scribes? Scribes were teachers of religious law. Scribes also wrote their own laws. And they taught that their own man-made laws were just as important or more so than the laws of God. Scribes and Pharisees rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Yet here's a scribe that says, Jesus, I will go wherever you go. But Jesus does not seem to be very welcoming. Why? Like we've seen Jesus do many times in the book of Luke, Jesus can see into people's hearts. Jesus can see the scribe. The scribe is thinking more about what he hopes to gain by following Jesus rather than what he is willing to sacrifice. The scribe is thinking more about what he's hoping to gain by following Jesus rather than what he's willing to sacrifice. The scribe obviously was aware of these huge crowds Jesus attracted everywhere. So Jesus' popularity is a plus. And the scribe had to know that Jesus gave his closest disciples the power to heal people and cast out demons. So these are all really good perks for being in Jesus' inner circle. And maybe the scribe's even imagining there'd be some serious dollars in it, you know? So the scribe says, Jesus, I want in. I want into this. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus does not forbid him for following him. From, he, Jesus doesn't say, no, you can't follow me. Jesus merely says... The foxes have holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Jesus is telling this man, okay, you want to follow me? Look at me. Because I don't live in comfort or luxury or even in convenience. I don't even have a house or an apartment or a room that I can call my home. Jesus' response is fascinating. Do you see it? Because the simple life Jesus described would absolutely attract somebody that humbly wants to serve him. The humble servant would say, Jesus, I don't care about anything other than following you. But Jesus' answer would absolutely repel somebody that was more interested in personal comfort and gain. Spurgeon uh, wrote uh, about this, and he said that Jesus knew how to warn the pretentious as well as accept the penitent. Jesus knew how to warn the pretentious as well as accept the penitent. Jesus knew how to warn the selfish and accept the sincere. We're not told if the scribe ever followed Jesus after this, but the implication is he did not. There's an obvious question here for you and me. You probably know what that question is, but I'll ask it. Are any of us like this scribe? Are any of us like this unnamed scribe? Do we want to follow Jesus, but only when it's comfortable? Jesus is telling us if we want to follow him, he must be more important to us than any sacrifice he asks us to make. Jesus is telling us if we want to follow him, then he must be more important to us than any sacrifice he asks us to make. Let's remember what Jesus said earlier in chapter 9, Luke 9, 23. Pastor Drew covered this. Uh, go back and listen to that passage if you would love a wonderful refresher. Luke 9, 23. And Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. To follow Jesus means he must, he must increase in importance day by day and our own wants and desires must decrease. So when you and I say, I want to follow Jesus, we are promising God that day by day Jesus will increase in importance to us. And our own wants and our own desires and our own needs will decrease. Verse 59 and 60, Jesus speaks to a second person. Let's read about that. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Wow, what a scene. Out of all the people crowding around Jesus on this day, Jesus looks into that sea of faces and he sees something in this one man's heart, this one guy. And Jesus personally turns only to him and says, follow me, follow me. And instead of saying, wow, yes, Lord, the man says, wait, wait, Lord, wait. He asked for permission to go bury his father. Okay, that sounds like a reasonable request, right? 
But Jesus' answer reveals that Jesus knew exactly what was going on in this person's life. If the man's father had just died and was waiting for burial, this man would already be home, tending to arrangements as the Jewish duty of that day demanded. So when this man asks for permission to bury his father, he's using a figure of speech, a common saying of that day that basically means he is waiting to receive his father's inheritance. Jesus, wait. Can I, can I go with you after I receive my father's inheritance? So this man gets the personal call from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he puts the Lord's call on an indefinite hold. Please hold, Jesus. My inheritance might come in a few months or a few years or later. Please wait. This man wants to get his finances all worked out. He wants to get all his dollar ducks in a row before he's ready to commit to Jesus. But Jesus tells this man exactly what he needs to hear. Jesus says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. What does this mean? What did Jesus mean? He means there are two kinds of death. The first kind of death Jesus mentions is spiritual death. The Bible tells us that we are all dead. We are all spiritually dead. We are all dead in our sins. We are all dead to God. And there's only one way we can be made alive to God, and that is through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells this man, let let the spiritually dead, let those who are just only concerned in worldly affairs, not the things of Christ, let them make it their highest priority to bury their own dead. But if it's for you, I'm giving you a much higher priority. I'm calling you to go tell everyone that I have come to save you, to save your father, and to save everyone who will believe in me. You know, I have to wonder, every time I read this, this is very close to the same invitation, same command that Jesus later gave to the Apostle Paul. What if this man right here, this unnamed man, had accepted, would he have become the greatest writer in the New Testament instead of Paul? But this man says, no, I'm I'm not ready. Jesus is not... Jesus is not saying that funerals are unimportant or that his followers should ignore family commitments or that family, the people that follow Jesus should not get their inheritance. No, Jesus is saying that the call to follow him, the call to follow Jesus, the call to learn and obey everything Jesus said is the highest commitment we have. It far exceeds any other commitment we have. Do you look at it that way? This is how Jesus looks at the call to follow him. To follow Jesus is the highest call you and I have in life. To follow Jesus is the highest call we have in life. Jesus will have more to say about this when we get to chapter 14. So we're not told if this second man followed Jesus after this or not, but the implication again is, no, he he did not. So are any of us like this second man. Have we heard the call of the Lord to follow him and serve him, but we're putting his call on hold for whatever reason? Can't take your call right now, Jesus. Just hold. Get back to you. Are we putting the call that we hear the Lord putting on our hearts? Are we putting him on hold? If we want to follow Jesus, here's what we need to understand. If we, you and I want to follow Jesus, he cannot be one of our priorities. He has to be our highest priority. If we want to follow Jesus, he can't just be one of our 
priorities. He came to become the highest priority of our life. When you and I wait, wait for the right time, the, the right time to commit to Jesus, all we do is keep waiting, don't we? That right time never seems to come. I told you this is a convicting passage. Verse 61 to 62, a third person speaks up. Let's read about him, and then we'll be done. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This man wants to follow Jesus, but he's starting off on the wrong foot. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but, but, whenever you and I say but to the Lord, we are heading in the wrong direction. The man says he will follow the Lord after he says goodbye to those at his home. This sounds reasonable on the surface, but again, Jesus can see under the surface. The man wants to say goodbye to those at his home. This is a very interesting phrase that the man used because the man did not mention a father, a wife, or children. So this phrase, those at my home, does not necessarily mean he wants to say goodbye to his family. Saying goodbye to those at his home could also include giving instructions to his servants. It could include taking care of family business, could include a lot of other things. So this man, this third man, has a lot on his mind. He has a lot of other concerns that are pulling him away from following Jesus. And Jesus tells this man exactly what he needs to hear. He says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by that? In Jesus' day, everyone knew that when a farmer put his hand to the plow and started making those rows, the farmer always looked straight ahead because if he looked sideways or looked back, his rows would go off course. Jesus tells this man he's already off course because he's, he's not only looking back, he's looking to back out of the commitment he just made to the Lord. The man said, I will follow Jesus, but then immediately added, but not now, later. I got some other stuff I want to do, and then, then, then I'll, then I'll follow, Okay. This man is negotiating with Jesus. He's negotiating with the Lord. He wants to follow, and he wants to serve the Lord, but only under certain conditions. He wants to follow the Lord Jesus, but only under certain conditions. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. Here Jesus is telling us that no one can follow two leaders. If this man tries to go Jesus' way while at the same time trying to go his own way, it's not going to work. So Jesus just tells the man very plainly, you're not fit. That kind of attitude, that kind of uh, following is not fit for the kingdom of God. The word fit is really interesting too because it means useful. Jesus will use this same word in chapter 14 to say that when salt loses its flavor, it's not fit or useful for anything, not even for fertilizer, so it must be thrown away. No one, after committing to following Jesus and then changing his or her mind, is fit or useful for the work of God. We are not told if this third man followed Jesus after this, but the implication, again, is no, he did not. So, I'm sorry to keep asking you this, but I've been asking myself this every time I've read this passage. Are any of us like this third man? Are we telling the Lord... 
we will follow him and serve him, but only under certain conditions. Jesus compared this third would-be follower to a farmer plowing a field. That's interesting because farmers plow their fields looking for a harvest of grain or vegetables. But followers of Jesus plow the field looking for a harvest of the souls of people. When you and I go out into the world as followers of Jesus and we take our eyes off of him to look at our own interests, we can make a real mess out of our plow row. We can make the field a total mess. We can have a terrible impact on the harvest when we take our eyes off of Christ. Some people, as we know, are forming their opinions about Jesus only by watching us. People are watching how we represent Jesus based on our words and our actions. Are we attracting people to Jesus by our words and actions or are we having the opposite effect on people? Following the Lord is serious business. Souls of people are in, are in the balance. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to keep our eyes on him all the time because if we don't, we will wander off our own way. We will go our own way, not his. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus all the time. To follow Jesus means we keep our eyes on him. Okay, so what are you and I going to do with these words from Jesus today? What are we going to do with what Jesus just told us? We have three options, okay? There's more than three, but I only listed three. We can feel convicted. We can feel convicted by his words and realize we need to make some changes in our life. We can really feel convicted, maybe even guilty, and say, I've got to make some changes, Lord, thank you. But then other things will distract us, and pretty soon, maybe even before we get home, we'll have forgotten everything Jesus said. So that's an option for us. Second option, we can listen to the words of Jesus and think how well they apply to somebody else. (laughs) Well, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this. But we can fail to realize that Jesus is speaking these words to us today. He's speaking directly to you and directly to me. Or third option. We can hear the words of Jesus and ask him to show us any place in our life where we are not following him as we should. We can ask for his help to make the changes he shows us we need to make. In a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer for option three. I hope you'll all pray with me. Our prayer team won't be outside today because they'll be blown into the next county. So our prayer team is going to be in the foyer to the right, my right, by the prayer wall right over there. So if you need prayer for anything today, our prayer team will be right outside the door in the foyer by the prayer wall. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you can see into our hearts and lives just like you saw into the lives of the people we just read about in your passage today. Thank you for telling us exactly what we need to hear too. Please show us any place, Lord, where we have an unforgiving spirit toward people. Show us where we respond to people with with, with fire instead of with forgiveness. Please show us any place where our priorities are out of order. Show us where we are thinking more about what we want rather than what you want. 
Show us, Lord, where our comfort or our convenience is more important to us than just hearing you, obeying you, and serving you wherever you want us to go. Show us anything in this world that we love more than you. Show us, Father, where we need to make some changes in our lives to fully commit ourselves to following you, to learning all we can about you so we can obey you and become just like you, Jesus. Lord, help us surrender our schedules to you and surrender our responsibilities to you and our commitments to you. Help us surrender our relationships and possessions to you. Help us surrender our rights to you and our wants to you and our needs to you. Lord, we want to live devoted to you, not distracted or divided in our commitment to you. Please, help us realize that now is the time to follow you. Now, not later. It's in the name of Jesus, our leader, we pray. Amen.